Jesus has uh, just been dismissed, so to speak, from Pilate's presence. Uh, so we're picking up in the second portion of uh, chapter six, uh, chapter excuse me, verse sixteen, here in chapter nineteen. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. May God bless the reading of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would overthrow our own kingdoms this morning uh, through the preaching of Your Word. I ask that You would pull up the roots of sin in our lives this morning through the preaching of that same Word that You would restore us, reconcile us, renew us through the preaching of Your Word this morning. And so pour out Your mercy and grace upon us because You have poured out Your justice and wrath upon Jesus the Son. It is in His name we pray. Amen. In the late 70s, the band Rainbow was on tour around the world. And one of the things that was a little interesting about that particular tour was that the opening song of that tour was from an album they hadn't released yet. Leave it to Richie Blackmore to be the guy to open a concert with a song that his fans had not yet purchased. The name of that song is really what matters at this point in time, because that song was called Kill the King. And of course, uh, Rodney James Dio did his mythical sort of thing, the medieval idea there of kings and all kinds of magic and stuff. And uh, the whole premise, of course, gets in touch with that anti-authoritarian spirit that we all struggle with. It was, of course, about overthrowing kings and the danger that is present when that happens. The anti-authoritarian spirit. He could have written that song and put it right here in this context of the death of Jesus because of the anti-authoritarian spirit that had taken up both the Jews and the Romans at this point in time. And so let's look at this text 
through sort of that lens to a degree to understand what's going on in the death of Jesus here. The big idea is different than the big idea you have. Cross it out. Forget it. This is what happens when my, I'm planning to go to Phoenix on Thursday and have to write this thing by Wednesday and uh, then don't have to go to Phoenix on Thursday. Um, receive Jesus as King and Savior is really what the big idea of this ends up being. That we need to receive Jesus as Savior and King. I think I just changed the order there, didn't I? Um, Let's start with this idea of that anti-authoritarian spirit in that the world is guilty of killing the King. That it does exactly what Ronnie James Dio sang about in that old song by Rainbow. The world is guilty of killing the King with a capital K. The Jewish and Roman leaders had conspired to destroy Jesus, and one of the things we focused on last week was that it kept coming up that he was the king of the Jews and therefore was seen to be, at least, you know, was told to be a threat to Roman power in that place. But I want us to keep in mind that the Jewish leaders, as well as the Roman leaders here, represent the whole world. They represent in part... God's covenant people who are rebellious, as well as the outsiders, the Gentiles who were rebellious. But more than that, they represent, I think, the religious and the irreligious. The religious leaders who were rebelling against the true king did the same thing as the irreligious leaders of Rome, through Pontius Pilate, in rebelling against the true king, not just of the Jews, but of all humanity. We could see this in a different way. The legalists and the licentious. What they have in common, of course, although their lives will look very different, sort of law-abiding, you know, scrupulous about the law versus those who don't care about the law and whose lives are marked by sin, is that both of them are trying to live without God. They're both trying to live in a way that that frees them from the authority of God, frees them from, they think, the need for grace, the need for mercy, just it looks different. But the heart is the same, regardless of its legalism, whether it's legalism or licentiousness. We must think of them as representing the whole world, not just the most immoral, but of the average Joe, the average person that we meet upon the streets, and for many of you, the average person you once were, dead in sins and trespasses. And we see that through uh, the Gospel of John, as well as the, uh, the other Gospels, that as God's kingdom is kind of pressing in through the ministry of Jesus, we have to recognize that worldly people are revolting. That idea that we see in Psalm 2, that they want to cast off the chains of God, that's what's taking place. They see God as someone who's trying to enslave them and someone from whom they must be free. And so these people saw Jesus as one from whom they must be freed. And so what happens next in this story Well, actually, we're skipping a spot. We'll get back to it. But we see that Pilate 
infuriates the Jewish leaders by writing, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And he places this as the charge against Jesus upon the cross. This is written in three languages. Hebrew, Greek, Latin. And we could get into, you know, the sort of the ideas of, oh, yes, the language of power, the language of religion, language of philosophy. But really what it basically gets down to is these are the three languages that everyone around them would be able to read. They would be able to read at least one of these things. If they were Jewish, they would be able to read Hebrew. If they were among the Romans that were in town, they would be able to read the Latin. And if they were among the Hellenized people who were in town for the festival, they would be able to read Greek. And so basically, Pilate wants everyone who's in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem to be able to look upon this man, Jesus, upon the cross and read the charge against him was King of the Jews. And of course... The Jewish leaders didn't believe he was the king of the Jews, and so they want him to change it. It should say, he says he was king of the Jews. And Pilate, although he's just speaking out of his frustration with the Jewish leaders, he wants to be somewhat freed from them and from you know the hoops that he has just jumped through to kind of get back at them for everything that has gone on in the previous day. He says that thing of what I have written, I have written, meaning I ain't changing nothing. Thank you. Have a nice day. Okay, that's essentially what he's saying at this point in time. But what I want us to see or what I want us to consider and think about and, and, and sort of get in our minds, is that this is not accidental. The killing of this king did not just sort of arise mysteriously out of nowhere, but it has, be, has, the, the, it has begun way back in the Garden of Eden. It started when the serpent tempted and deceived Eve. Okay? That anti-authoritarian spirit, that spirit of legalism, that spirit of licentiousness began all the way back in the garden. And now this is the, the root that started then is now blossomed and is born this horrendous fruit of the killing of the true king. And the same serpent that was deceiving and tempting Eve is the one who was behind this temptation and deception of the Jewish leaders and Pontius Pilate. Let's not think that this was merely the actions of men. It's similar to the story of Job. If you go into Job 1 and you read Job 1, we see a number of people acting. We see God acting with His purposes and plans. We see Satan acting through his purposes and plans, and we see human people acting with their purposes and plans. And at times, their plans are the same, though their purposes are different, and so we see the same thing here. Everybody seemingly wants Jesus dead for different reasons, for different purposes. The Father is sending him to his death for the reason of salvation, but Satan and these people want to be rid of Jesus. They think that they can put a blow to God. And so just 
As Satan stirred up the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans against Job, we see that he stirred these people up against the Messiah, similar to what we see in Psalm 2. What did he use to stir them up? Pride is the first one. Pride, the notion that we know better than God. Pride, the notion that we deserve better than what God is giving us at this point in time. Pride. Not just pride, but also fear. Fear that God will somehow withhold something good from us. Fear which results in this refusal to trust in His love. And so when we think about sin, what we should often think about is the fear and the pride that drive us. Okay, that's the root. The particular sin that you might see is merely the flower that that root produces. Don't just clip off the flowers of sin in your life but begin to get down to the root of the sin, begin to, ad- to address the p- way in which pride and fear are functioning in your lives. Whether it's politics, as I prayed for earlier today, whether it's family relationships, work relationships, the fear and the pride are ultimately what's getting in the way. Here's the rub which is a result of the fear and the pride, so to speak, is that, you know, just as we do with Adam, you know, we blame Adam. Who doesn't blame Adam here? But it would be wrong for us to go, if I were in Adam's shoes, things would be different. Right? Let's not deceive ourselves through our pride. Let us think that if we were amongst the Jewish leaders, or if we were amongst the Romans, let us not think that we would do differently. But let us keep in mind that we most likely would have been amongst those calling out, crucify, crucify. That we would have been Pontius Pilate conceding to this cry for fear of his own life and job. That we would have done no better than they. This continues. This anti-authoritarian spirit, this wanting to throw off the chains, even though presumably the king appears to be dead, he's no longer present. Note the ever-expanding moral boundaries and the ever-shrinking boundaries. (laughs) the confused world in which we live that throws off God's law to pursue sin, and yet, because of that legalistic nature, puts up another law and calls those things sin, for which often there is no deliverance, like the sin of intolerance. Perhaps. And so we see, you know, sexually this explosion and this, this encouraging of sin left and right, you know, everywhere. But on the other hand, you mustn't be intolerant. 
And so we see the, the proliferation of, of uh, political correctness and, and uh, other kinds of things that the world now looks down upon and is very confused state because it's lost its moral compass. And so it calls things which are good wrong and things that are wrong good. That's just a manifestation of the spirit that began in the Garden of Eden continues today. And so the world filled with this anti-authoritarian spirit seeks to destroy the true king and actually crucified the true king. That's the bad news. What was going on? That's what the world wanted to do and that's what Satan wanted them to do. But what was God doing through this? And we see, ultimately, that Christians are pardoned by the sin-bearing Lamb of God. You see, the King of the Jews is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we see here that Jesus went out bearing His own cross. That thing I skipped over. Jesus left the city. And that's significant. Theologically. Because the sacrificial animals, after they're slaughtered upon the altar, are dragged outside of the city. We see this in Leviticus 16. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. And so when the author of Hebrews thinks about the crucifixion of Jesus, what he does is he brings this up. Chapter 13, verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus, he says, also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And so he's saying that Jesus is being brought out is a sign that he is the sacrificial Lamb of God who is going to be given for the sins of God's people. And so if I'm a king and I know that people are coming for me, I get my bodyguard. I get them arrested. I send the executioner for them. Okay, that's what normally happens when a king is going to uh, is being threatened. But we see that Jesus instead went willingly to his own execution. He was not like Louis the Sixteenth, brought to the guillotine against his will by a anti-authoritarian mob during the French Revolution. Sorry, Lucette. Okay. This is very different. He goes as a lamb willingly to the slaughter, as opposed to, I'm sure, what I would be like, kicking and screaming, don't bring me to the guillotine. We see that he is like Isaac, as we read about in Genesis 22, who was bearing the wood for his own sacrifice. Jesus is bearing the cross the wood that was a part of his own sacrifice precisely because the father didn't withhold him just as Abraham didn't withhold his own son. 
Except this time, instead of there being a shout from heaven that, that, that stays the hand of Abraham, the father is going to not spare his son, but allow him to be struck and killed by worthless and evil men. We usually see the depictions of Jesus with a full cross upon his uh, shoulder, and that would be usually an erroneous depiction of what happened. They would carry the cross beam, the horizontal beam, because the other portion of the cross was already stuck in the ground. Still, a heavy load to to carry, especially when you consider the fact that you've just been beaten. Nearly an inch left in your life. And so it's not surprising that we find in Matthew's account, as we read, that uh, they impressed a person, Cyrene, uh, Simon, who's from Cyrene, into service to carry the cross the rest of the way because Jesus apparently wasn't able to carry it anymore. It's odd what we have done with this or what some people have done with this. i can't, I got to make sure I get this guy's name right. Balsalides, I've never heard of this guy before, but he is a second century Gnostic, a.k.a. heretic. Okay, But anyway, <laughs> what, what Balsalides taught was, remember, Jesus only appears to die, that actually it was Simon of Cyrene who was nailed upon the cross. And lo and behold, not all Muslims, but many Muslims believe that this is what happened, that it was actually Simon of Cyrene who was put upon the cross, not Jesus, whom they do acknowledge as a prophet that was put upon the cross. To which my question would be, then what happened to Jesus? If he's alive... Three days later, four days later, five days later, a month, a year later, how come we don't know about him walking around, so to speak, aside from the resurrection appearances, of course, and aside from you know the ascension, it would have been easy to prove that Jesus had not died. He was a public figure. Lots of folks could pick him out of a crowd. There were no plastic surgeons to disguise his face. So, anyway, it is there that they crucified him after he and and Simon had carried the cross. They crucified him and him with two others. And so we see from, well, obviously we know if they're being crucified, that the accusation against them was very severe and serious. They are called to be robbers in Matthew's account. And I think of it in terms of, similar to how John calls Barabbas a robber. They were probably part of Barabbas' group of insurrectionists, robbing and killing and seeking to overthrow the Roman government. Don't know this for a fact, can't prove it, but it seems to make a whole lot of sense to me, since the man that was set free that uh, Jesus may die was Barabbas, the false son of God, the insurrectionist. And Jesus dies between these two men, presumably, of course, and as, their own, as they testified to one another, they deserved to die, 
while Jesus did not deserve to die. So again, we see another fulfillment of the details from Isaiah 53. This idea that He was numbered with the transgressors. And yet, He bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. What are we to make of this? Not the details. That's the beautiful thing about Scripture, I think. It's not like the movie The Passion, which uh, is very grotesque and uh, tries to elaborate upon the sufferings of Jesus. Uh, it's, this is very economical. It tells you he was scourged. and It told, tells you that he was crucified, but it doesn't go into all the gory details because it's not the gory details that matter. We don't have to watch a public scourging to, to know the suffering of Jesus. What we should do is not just know, understand the physical suffering of Jesus. We need to grapple with what it means. And the first thing it means is that we are to look upon the dreadful wrath of God that is poured out for sin, our sin. We're to reckon with this reality that this is what sin produces. We think of the fleeting pleasures of our sin, but we don't think of the horrible harvest that it will one day produce. We tend to think of sin almost this way. Way back when, when I was still living in Florida, I got a speeding ticket. Trying to avoid the points on my insurance, I went to driving school, online driving school. I got the funny one, you know. So if ever you have to do that, find the, the humorous one, okay? Um, well, it wasn't that funny, but it was better than nothing, okay? As though my problem was that I lacked education. As if my problem was I didn't know how to drive. That wasn't my problem. I'm like Sammy Hagar. I can't drive 55. There's a, in my heart, because I'm an impatient human being, I don't know if living in New England, you know, fortified this or not, but I want to be there. I don't want the process of getting there. And so I drive fast. Now I'm getting older. That means I'm getting more cautious, especially with the Tucson traffic. I don't drive as fast as I used to. But the problem was my heart. And my heart was not addressed simply by going to driving school. I was watching this online conversation sort of unfold, and this person talked about, um, you know, they had served in the military, they had been in Afghanistan, and they saw horrible things that were, that were done in Afghanistan by Afghanis to Afghanis. And they were talking about how horrible that culture is, how corrupt that culture is, and someone, of course, had, they need to be educated. Education is good. Don't, don't, those of you who are teachers here, don't, don't hear me as dismissing that which you do. It is an important function. But education does not change the human heart and its love for sin. 
And here we see in the cross of Jesus the horrible price of sin. If we remove the sin-bearing and the wrath of God from the death of Jesus, it simply becomes some sentimental tragedy. Isn't that bad that that happened to Jesus? He didn't deserve that. We have to keep the sin-bearing character of His death. It's the bearing of our sin. It's the bearing of God's wrath for redemption. His inscription read, King of the Jews. What would yours read? I mean, it wouldn't read one thing. If you were me, it'd be this really long thing. Okay? I don't mean to make fun of it, in a sense. Um, and, I, and I only know a portion of my sin. Okay? It'd be a long list. But think of what would be on there. Your deceit, selfishness, cruelty towards other people, destruction perhaps of their property or destruction of their name, the drunkenness and sexual immorality that plagues your heart. All of these things and more would be listed for all to see because you have done them. And what we are to believe is that those sins and the punishment that they deserve have been borne by Jesus as the, ra- as the son- ugh, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul goes there in Colossians when he says, And you who were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, I can identify with that the trespasses thing. I understand what it means to be dead in my trespasses. To have a heart that's dead to God. And then to be made alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. Now that's the important thing. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Essentially, as if He took my inscription and bore it over Himself. And your inscription over Himself. Paying the price the wrath of God for those sins. That's the first thing I want us to think of theologically. The second thing I want us to think of theologically is to see the astounding love of God that is revealed in Christ crucified for sinners. Which, if we have a biblical understanding of this, we see that Jesus didn't die so God would love us, but Jesus died precisely because the Father did already love us and want to redeem us. And so the Father and Son are working together. This is not some notion of, of, uh, as some have said, cosmic child abuse. The Son is a willing participant in this because He loves the Father and He loves His people. The Father sent the Son out of love. Jesus persevered to the cross out of love. We are meant to look at the cross and see not only our sin, but also His love. And we are intended to drink deep of that love. We're meant 
to be astounded by that love. We think on Mother's Day, which is coming up soon, of a mother's love and how it's displayed in day in, day out. Cooking. Cleaning. Doing laundry. And yes, they are all manifestations of love. But we have never seen another love like this love that gave everything to redeem. Him who should have known no pain because he knew no sin experienced pain. He who should not have experienced the the wrath of the Father, the abandonment of the Father, knew it as our mediator for us. I remember a concert I went to years and years ago, a Christian festival, and... um, there was a speaker, and they started talking about the love of God. And I was a relatively new Christian at the time. and It was pressed home to me in a way I'd never really grasped it before, and I was just weeping. That he could love someone like me. That he could love someone who had done the things that I had done, that had betrayed him in the ways in which I had betrayed him. And he does. He does. John Knox wrote, What do you think? That God's goodness, mercy, and grace can be overcome by your iniquities? Will God, who cannot undo His work of salvation, be a liar? Lose His own glory because you are a sinner? No. And that's essentially where Paul is going in Romans 5.1. Okay, having been reconciled to God, through, justified, by God uh, justified by faith through Christ, have peace with God. Your salvation is not undone when you sin tomorrow. But the love of God stands sure precisely because He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him for us all, as Paul says in Romans 8. So don't believe the lies of the devil who wants you to live in fear. But look to the cross and remember the love of God revealed. And so Jesus, as the Lamb of God, bore the punishment for our legalism as well as our licentiousness to bring us back to the Father. Which brings us to the third thing I want us to consider this morning, and that is to imitate the self-sacrificing love of the King. How does faith respond? We see Westminster Shorter Catechism Question 86, what is faith in Jesus Christ? The answer is, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, meaning it's given to you, whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone, meaning Christ alone, for salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. Okay? 
And so we see that there are many ways in which Christ is offered to us in the Gospel. If we just confine ourselves to the Gospel of John, we see Jesus offered to us as Jacob's ladder. The Word of God. The Bread of Heaven. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Light of the world. The Messiah. The Son of God. We see him as the prophet like Moses. And there's just wave after wave of ways in which he is presented to us for our salvation. And so when we receive Christ, when we believe in Christ, we don't just sort of take off the the a la carte menu of Messiah, which of these do I want? We receive, as Augustine said, totus Christus, the whole Christ. We receive all of these things, and so we don't just receive the Lamb of God, but we also receive the King of the Jews, who was also the Lamb of God. Or to put it another way, we don't simply receive Him as Savior, but we also receive Him as King. As Calvin said, otherwise we tear asunder the Son of God as if He can be one of these things and not the other of these things. And so united to Christ by faith, we receive this double grace of justification and sanctification. They're different, they're distinct, but they're received at the same time, and they're interrelated. And so what we find is that the Father who saves us through the Son also conforms us to the likeness of the Son, His beloved Son, in whom He has made us His adopted sons. And so He's not content to have one Jesus, but He wants a lot of other people who look a lot like Jesus. We're not totally passive in that process. We see that we are called to imitate Him out of faith, hope, and love. If you go to community group, you saw this, hopefully, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, and you became imitators of us and the Lord. It's, it's similar to what we see in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's restoring the image of God in His children. And we participate in this. We imitate Him out of our faith, our hope, and our love. Think of ourselves as little children. Unless you have a really bad dad, most boys want to be like their dad for a long period of time. They idolize his strength or his abilities or something, and they want to be like their dad. And daughters often want to be like their moms. That's what this is. Loving someone who has loved us so well that we want to be like them so we can love well. That's what's going on. See, there's this indicative 
this fact of grace, which then produces in Paul's thinking the imperative, the command for obedience. And we can't get the order mixed up. It always has to be grace, then obedience. Not obedience, so we get grace. Grace always comes first. But because we have received this incredible grace and justification, we are to imitate Christ. In other words, we show evidence that we actually have received grace, though we don't think of it like, oh, I've got to prove evidence, I've got to show evidence. But we look back and go, oh, yeah, there's evidence. But we are also to imitate his sacrificial love. That's where I'm really going here. We are to consider, as, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, the interests of others. We are to also, as Jesus says in Matthew 16, He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We are to live what's called cruciform living, a life shaped by the cross, one of sacrifice. And not just sacrifice of, you know, in general, but sacrifice for other people. Okay? Our individualism sometimes twists this. This is the time of year we see a lot of that. With people giving up chocolate. Or Facebook. Booze. <laughs> or whatever it is. And I think that really misses the point of what God is calling us to. Precisely because it's all about the individual. It's not about the relational context. Okay? He's calling us to sacrificial love towards one another, which is not something that is revealed in giving up chocolate. I can say that because I don't really love chocolate. I'm a salty guy. Um, but it's intended to change all of our lives, not a 40-day stretch of your life, although, you know, some people that, that, that is an expression of what they want to do. But here's sort of what it looks like. And I hate to use this example because it makes me look good, but I'm not. Okay? I was in my hammock the other afternoon. I had come home a little early from work because I was tired of reading. My brain just couldn't get any more in it. So I'm sitting in my hammock and I'm thinking about my sermon. And, you know, where, where is this text going to bring me? Okay? And so I got all these theological things going in my brain, you know. And, and I decided, you know, I want to take a walk. You know, I got to get my 10,000 in. Okay? So I want. And as, I, as I'm moving towards that process of uh, going for a walk and getting my 10,000 steps, I rec I, out of the corner of my eye, I see the swing that I have neglected to repair for a few weeks now. I need to stop thinking about my walk and start thinking about my children who want to use the swing. I can't do both at the same time. I guess if I had Bill Nye's little you know, headlamp thingy, I could do it in the dark, but I don't want to do it in the dark. And so that's what it looks like. 
It's a simple little thing. But it's loving my kids. It's about loving your spouse. It's about loving your neighbor who inconveniences you. That's what Jesus is calling us to in this. Because Jesus, of course, was inconvenienced for us, his neighbor, who really put him out. And so, that's where it goes. Paul talks about that a little bit in Philippians 3. He's talking about giving up all things that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So, brothers and sisters, I, I, part of where I was going and sitting in my hammock that day was the notion that Jesus is not simply added on to your life. He's not tacked on to his life. But this, the idea is more that Jesus becomes your life and radically changes your life. All right, I've gone on too long. Kill the King. It's not just a really good rock song. But really, it's a reflection of the autonomy and individualism which have plagued humanity since the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. And it may look like either legalism or licentiousness, but you know it comes from the same place. As the Lamb, Jesus bore the price of our rebellion, our legalism, our licentiousness. And as we rest and receive in Christ, as he is offered to us in the gospel, we are free from our guilt, we are free from our shame, and God begins to restore us into his image. And so Jesus is not just our Savior, but also our Lord. And so he makes us like himself. He makes us into self-sacrificing lovers of other people. So instead of killing the king, capital K, we begin to kill the usurper who took his place in our hearts. And we need to pray. Father, may these words not just bounce off our hearts, but may your Spirit take them and drive them deep. that we would drink deep of your love for us revealed in Christ crucified, that we would drink deep of the reality of our sins borne by Jesus, that he took your wrath and we're free. We're forgiven. We don't need to walk in guilt and shame if we have Jesus. And help us to drink deep of the reality of what you're up to in us now that we belong to you. Now that we're your children. And so transform us by your grace. Change us and make us those lovers of other people that we both want to be and fear being because we see what love did to Jesus. So help us Tear down the pride that makes us think we've already arrived and, and pull up the weed of fear that keeps us from going all in. And we ask that you do this uh, so that you would be glorified, you would be exalted, you would be treasured, not just in ourselves, but 
among those who see and hear and come to believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.